0: Oh, it is I, Graham Norton, offering you a hearty welcome to this meeting of my book club. We have some truly remarkable tales to tell and stories to mull over. And to help me do both those things, I am joined by the Sara Collins. Hello.
1: Hello, Graham.
0: How are you? How are you? I- I'm very well. I asked you
1: first. I'm on a low because... My neighbourhood fox is missing and I've sort of taken a shine to him. He's a very dishevelled, kind of raggedy, ratty looking fox with a limp. Not only is he missing, but mysteriously, he's been replaced with a sleek, kind of alpha looking fox. So I think something terrible might have happened to him. I think some other fox claimed his turf. Um, uh, Do you live west? Yeah, west London.
0: Okay, because there was a fox sitting in a lane. (laughs) Of the A4
1: two nights ago.
0: It was Mr. Limpy. He did look like he wasn't going to go far. (laughs) So, uh, yes, I have an awful feeling I know where your fox is. Oh, dear. I'm
1: going to be very crestfallen for the rest of this, Graham, I warn you now.
0: Uh, All right, let's get going. And there is something of a travel vibe about today, but not perhaps in the conventional sense. First up, our book is Our Wives Under the Sea by Julia Armfield. It centres around a submarine voyage that does not go according to plan and a rather awkward return to dry land. Here to get beneath its surface are Katie, who chose it for us, Varshini, Stuart and Gabby. Hello, all. Hi.
2: Hi, hello. Hi, Kim. Uh
0: Now, uh, <laughs> Varshini, uh, health, we all love health, but sexual health is uh, top of our list. Have you been delving into sexual health?
3: I mean, it's an important part of your health. So I've been in London for the last few days um, doing a taster in one of the sexual health, Clinics, which has been so interesting and so fun.
4: The phrase taster <laughs> is not yeah, the word you should health, use That's <laughs> true.
3: That's the so other bad. word is gum. What does gum stand for? GUM stands for genital urinary medicine. Woohoo! One of my friends was like, are you, are you a gum taster now? Is that your oh, job?
0: delightful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the mind boggles. Phrases we didn't think we'd hear today.
5: <laughs> Not a fan.
0: <laughs> and, and Gabby, is, it's, I don't want to embarrass you, but is, I mean, there's a health issue in your whole household, is there?
5: God, there is. Yeah, we've got a kitten who brought in ringworm to the dog. To the humans, to the other cat, the cats might have to be shaved and they are the most gorgeous, fluffy.
1: Do the humans have to be shaved, Gabby? Thankfully not.
5: (laughs) I mean, I skip without it, which I'm very proud of. We've only got one human infected.
2: (laughs) Mm. And how have you been, Stuart? Keeping busy? Yeah, keeping busy. It's it's quite cold in Orkney and um, I'm having a blockage in my flu, so that's not ideal for for the the weather (laughs) conditions.
0: Katie, you told us about your new tattoo, but now your father, your father has stolen your thunder.
6: Well, yeah. I mean, so he technically got the tattoo first and I'm sorry, dad, it's the worst thing I've ever seen. It's a tramp (laughs) stamp of a cartoon hedgehog. Wow. See,
5: in a picture, it did make me think of the um, Stop, Think and Go hedgehog advert. Yes.
6: So he's got like a really convoluted reason as to why he got it, which I'm actually just not going to even go into, but... I kind of had that really awful reaction where they're like, oh. And did you choose to get this? He's like, yeah, the guy followed my design exactly. I'm so proud of
1: it. And I was
0: like, hmm, how delightful. We'll try and take your minds off all of that when we come back to discover whether our wives under the sea cause waves of excitement or if you think it should have sunk without trace after we've spoken to Julia Armfield herself and after Sarah's, well, helped us get away from it all. Is that the, the general vibe, Sarah?
1: I, I was fascinated reading Julia Armfield's Our Wives, onto the sea with the description of the deep bottom of the ocean. I mean, to me, it felt like a place that wasn't a place, that she's almost sort of trying to conjure up negative space. And I thought that was really effective Um, and that it would pair well with three novels, I think, have a strong sense of space.
0: Wonderful. Well, I look forward to coming with you. what do they say? It's better to travel, hopefully, than to arrive? Well, here's someone who doesn't sound like she's having that great a trip.
7: I clasp the door handle of the taxi that's winding its way up the treacherous mountain roads, forging a path that will bring me closer to the truth. My grip on sanity is loosening as the separation between reality and this living nightmare rips down the middle, but I'm still holding on. I need an ally and a way out.
0: Much-loved actress Nicola Walker with an extract from actor Richard Armitage's new thriller Geneva. And later on, in a Talking Books First, we'll be hearing from both of them about bringing the audiobook to life and what happens when one of the narrators also happens to be the author. Right, it's time to get our feet wet. Our Wives Under the Sea is a story told by two voices. Leah, a marine biologist who went on an underwater scientific mission set to go to depths never reached before. And Miri, her wife, who had to wait at home for her return, thinking of things to do to pass the time. And there is a lot of time to fill, because something went wrong. And the trip, which was only supposed to be for three weeks, turns into six months. Leah returns safely, and the book starts with them both back on dry land. But Miri is beginning to realise that something is not right. Leah's behaving strangely, spending hours submerged in the bath, drinking salt water, and with physical changes happening to her face and skin. She's not really talking about anything, and all Miri can do is wait and try and work out what she needs, while also spending hours on the phone trying to get some answers from the mysterious Marine Institute behind the mission. Miri's account of their relationship, as it once was, and her growing unease on Leah's return, is interspersed with Leah's description of the mission, how it went wrong, and eventually what happened to her and her two fellow submariners in the very dark depths of the ocean. Julia Armfield had her first literary success with her collection of short stories, Salt Slow, published in 2019. Our Wives Under the Sea is her first novel, and came out in 2022. When I spoke, I started with whether she was aware that the idea was going to be a full-length book rather than a story.
8: Oh, I desperately did not know that this idea was the novel. What happened was um, most of the time if you write a short story collection, what will happen is that you'll bring it to a publisher and they'll go, that's cute, but do you have a novel as well? Um, and so that's what happened in this instance. And I pitched a novel, which I essentially made up on a train between uh, Clapham Junction and Balham, which if you've ever been on that train, is not a long train. Um, so I, I made that novel up and then very much did not write that novel, wrote a different novel, which I then brought to my editor, who, God bless her, was like, well, cool. Have you got anything else? Ooh. Uh, yeah. What happened was that because my partner is extremely intelligent, she was like, "Okay, why don't you take a month, decide what you want to do, just be calm and figure it out. And because I'm not very intelligent, I started writing our wives that day. Um, And it was originally a short story, which I'd actually wanted to write a sort of a prize for having finished the novel. And then I, I came and sort of took a look at it and went, oh, actually, I think that there is more here and there is more that I want to expand with these characters.
0: Now, Katie Blagdon, uh, she's our clubber who chose your book. She's got some great questions. Uh, she's saying the book has been described as horror, gothic, literary fiction, sci-fi. Did you have a particular genre in mind when you are writing it? And how do you feel about being described as genre fiction?
8: Um, I feel absolutely... F- Fine and good about being described as genre fiction because I think that genre snobbery really only diminishes us and I think that every genre is so interesting and so powerful in its own way. I don't know that I necessarily thought it would be one thing or another. I've always been very influenced by horror and I've always been very influenced by genre generally because I find that genre elements the way that I can tell stories better and I can sort of, I can tell very mundane stories I think by bringing in horror elements, bringing in sci-fi elements. I'm usually writing about relationships and I'm writing about people. And so the thing that I've often been very interested in is sort of how people respond to one very, very strange thing going on. Because I think that what people do is that people always try to assert normality or normality continues to assert itself, even in the most bizarre of circumstances. And I mean, I, I hate to do this, but the past two years proves that normality of a kind will continue and continue to assert itself no matter what happens.
0: And let's talk about the structure of these two timelines. Was it always going to be two voices, two timelines?
8: In the short story, it was just Mary. And it was Mary sort of talking about uh, what she sort of thought was going on and how uh, her wife was going to come back. And I realized if I was going to, I guess, maintain people's interest for a certain amount of time, I would need both. And it became this conversation between two people and sort of one narrative going down and one narrative coming up. It made it kind of sustainable as a novel, if you see what I mean.
0: And how hard was it to pace the the submarine timeline? Because obviously once it's down there, you know, there's a lot of time to kind of uh, fill.
8: Yeah, it was, um, that was really tricky actually because technically you're there for six months, but quite a lot of that narrative is about the first three days. And then it's like, and then months passed and we won't talk about that. But it's um, it was interesting to have to, fill in a lot of empty space that way and i found that a lot harder um whereas miri even though there's not necessarily much going on there's a lot more kind of memory and back and forth and sort of the narrative moves in different directions whereas the Leah sections were harder to write but i think probably more satisfying for that they were more interesting to research and there was sort of more to do that way but yeah pacing wise it was tricky
0: And in terms of the kind of subtle differences in their voice, how aware were you of that? Because they're kind of, in ways, they are similar voices, and yet they are distinct.
8: It's something that we all say quite a lot, that women get asked a lot whether their fiction writing is autobiographical in a way that men don't. But at the same time, I think that like everyone's writing is autobiographical to some degree because you have to draw off a voice. And so Miri is much more my voice. And that's why I got much more bored of writing her because you're just like, oh God, you're just, (laughs) you're just a drag and a pain, aren't you sometimes? Whereas with Leah, Leah was sort of fantastic to write because I was writing outside of my comfort zone and I was writing outside of my own knowledge because writers write about writers like all the time um, because that's what we know. And so writing about a marine biologist was great fun because I could just hang out on Wikipedia all day. So it was a lot more fun to write, Leah, but I think a lot more natural to write, Mary.
0: It's interesting because I just assumed you must know something about marine biology, <laughs> else why on earth would you do this to yourself? Yeah, that's true. But uh, you really didn't.
8: No, I, I know zero things about marine biology. I've I've not had anybody thus far telling me that I got anything like chronically wrong, which I'm taking as an enormous win for myself. But it's... um. It was it was really fun to read about things only up until the point that it was useful, because I'm not particularly interested in sort of explaining to people how the submarine works. I'm not particularly interested in sort of the deep down information of it. But Leah had to be believable, because if somebody is completely immersed in a job, that is what they're going to talk about to some degree. So there's a lot of time when I was like, OK, I need to go and find another fish now so I can talk about that fish for a bit. But yeah. <laughs>
0: Uh, Another question from Katie Blagden. She said, so much of this book to me reads as a story about uh, slow loss, illness and grief. Why did you choose to write a horror fantasy story to deal with this rather than just writing about a, a real disease or a real breakup?
8: First of all, I think that's absolutely what it is. I think that I wanted to write a novel about grief and the anticipation of grief and different forms of grief, the way that it can be about a relationship, the way it can be about a death. And I've always said that horror is the most romantic genre, because I think that actually horror and romance are both about fearing death in some way. Absolutely classically, horror directors and horror writers are, they're always talking about the things that scare them, but they're also talking about the things that preoccupy them and the things that inspire them and so I think that it's always been the way that I try and deal with the things that preoccupy me and the things that bother me is always been kind of to put them in a genre context and make them slightly stranger than they are and try to deal with that because then I can deal with the thing at their core much more easily so it's almost like creating a little bit of distance to get closer to something if that makes sense.
0: And in terms of the genre, is this the genre you intend to stay in now? Have you found, you know, obviously you found great success with this book.
8: I can't imagine myself suddenly turning to gritty realism, I guess. I think that I usually need that strange little thing in the corner to bounce off. I don't know that I will necessarily always be, I don't think this is straight horror, but I don't think I'll necessarily always be in straight horror. I'm not that good at doing normal, Um, so we'll see, I guess.
0: Right, Julia, there's some questions we ask everybody. Is there a book that turned you on to reading and what sort of age were you?
8: See, this is a difficult question because I, I can't remember a time when I wasn't reading particularly, but I used to listen to a lot of audio tapes and I was really obsessed. This is a very strange one, but I was really obsessed with Martin Jarvis reading the Just Williams stories when I was little. And I don't think that, oh, it, that yes. I know they're so good. And I don't know that it necessarily turned me on to reading because I was reading already. But I think that there is a belligerence about those books and that voice, which have informed a lot of the way that I respond to things later. I really love them.
0: Uh the next book we want is a book that not enough people know about.
8: Uh, there's an Australian author called Jennifer Downe who has written three books, but her most recent book was called Bodies of Light, which is absolutely astonishing. And it's kind of, it's about the care system in Australia and it's about sort of marginalised people in Australia, but it's also just absolutely beautiful in this enormous kind of like odyssey of a book about one person, which I just think everybody should read. It's definitely available on Amazon, even though I know Australian books can be tricky, but it's it's so good.
0: And then the final book we want to know about is the book that you wish you'd written, the book you like so much you're jealous of.
8: Oh, God. There's a book called Geek Love by Catherine Dunn, which... Uh, In some ways, I don't think you could right now and I don't think you maybe should right now. But at the same time, it's it's the most astonishing book. It's about um, it's about a family of circus performers. It's written by uh, Catherine Dunn, who I think used to be a boxing correspondent and then wrote like this book and maybe one other. And it's kind of horrible, but it also absolutely breaks my heart. I just think everybody should read it.
0: Julia Armfield on the attractions of horrible books and her own, not very horrible at all, Our Wives Under the Sea. Uh, So Zara, let's come up for air. Where are you taking us?
1: I'm not taking us that far away. In fact, coincidentally, I only noticed it this morning, two of the novels are set in Ireland. So (laughs) I think the first one is one you will have heard of, um, because everyone everywhere has been raving about this book this year. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and it is Small Things Like These by Ah, Claire Keegan. Yes. So at just over a hundred pages, it is tiny but I think it would lose its power if it was even one word longer. It conjures up a small town in County Wexford in Ireland just before Christmas 1985. And it follows a coal merchant who faces a moral dilemma when he encounters a young girl locked in the coal shed of the local convent, Laundry. And because this is Ireland in the 1980s, that word laundry comes loaded with so much social and political significance in the context being, of course, that these were places run by nuns where um, mothers who got pregnant out of wedlock would be kept and housed in really inhumane conditions, essentially work camps. And Claire Keegan, in this miraculous book, generates through really tiny brush strokes, a setting that feels complete and it feels immense and it gives you a deep understanding of the way people live there. I've never, and this is a very, very strong statement, but I stand by it. I've never read a book as finely balanced as this one. It's quiet, it's gentle, it lulls you with its rhythms, but it's smuggling a sharp edge shank inside of it because it builds to this devastating indictment on the cruelty of mother and baby homes and, and these laundries.
0: Fabulous. Okay, great first pick. Uh, where are we going next?
1: Next? Well, shall we stick with Ireland? I think we should. oh wow um, Yeah, 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 yeah. This one's had a recent Netflix adaptation, actually, as well. So people can also watch the show if they want. But first, they've got to get the book, um, which is The Wonder by Emma Donahue, who I believe is in another cracking episode of the podcast talking about her brilliant novel, Room. She is. It's set in a tiny village in the Irish Midlands in the middle of the 19th century. And it follows a young English nurse who has recently been in the Crimea, but she's dispatched to oversee the strange case in this little Irish village of a young girl who claims to have survived for months without eating. And the nurse is supposed to monitor the girl to decide whether she's a fraud. But this really thrillingly intricate relationship develops between them, the atheist nurse and the feverishly pious young girl. And the nurse's scepticism kind of meets the girl's faith. And a really wonderful story emerges from that. It's set against the backdrop of the Great Famine, of the 1840s and the nurse's recent experience of war. So it's thinking about what people hold on to, whether they hold on to faith or lose their faith through devastating experiences. Uh, I kind of think it's a bit like Wuthering Heights and its use of pathetic fallacy, and I've thrown in an English literature A-level word there, but, you know, everything about the <laughs> landscape and the and the conditions is sort of as mad and feverish as the people.
0: Okay, with a, with a heavy heart, we leave Ireland. Where are we going now?
1: <laughs> this one, a is even closer to home for me because we're gonna be in London. But it's White Teeth by Zadie Smith, who we have also had on the show. Yeah, We've got to have Claire Keegan on and then it'll be a kind of trifecta. (laughs) But anyway, White Teeth was Zadie Smith's first novel. She wrote this while she was a student at Cambridge University. It isn't perfect. Um, Zadie Smith herself has said that. But I did love the journey through the lives of two families in Wilsdon through the 70s and the 80s. One is Jamaican English, one is Bangladeshi English, and it explores how their fortunes diverge and intersect and it's serious and comic and extremely clever but what I remember is really standing out for me was the it, it has an almost Dickensian panoramic sweep of life as it was in that part of London at that time, which is why it's on this list. The sense of place here for me comes together as a kind of accumulation of the quirks and eccentricities and cultures and traditions of the people who inhabit it. And sometimes that's more powerful than just nature writing or straightforward outright description. If we have time, I want to add a little vignette about this, which I only discovered um, looking it up because I haven't read it in a long time preparing for the show, which is that one of the only... Uh, negative reviews in the chorus of praise for this novel it was actually written by Zadie Smith herself under a pseudonym. Did you know that? No, I
0: did not know that.
1: <laughs> it's hilarious. She wrote a review in which she said it's the literary equivalent of a hyperactive ginger-haired tap dancing ten-year-old. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow! And actually, what's weird is when you because you kind of think it's such a modern classic, and yet a lot of the storytelling is quite old-fashioned, like relying on coincidence and you know. All of those sorts of yes, things.
1: Yes, which, which is why I said Dickensian. And I think maybe Zadie Smith sort of distances yeah. herself a bit from that. Now, her style has become a lot more naturalistic. And when she talks about this book, she does say, oh, I wish I could have changed the ending.
0: Well, thank you so much for those picks, Sarah. And if you listening were too busy trying to find your suitcases in the loft to note down the titles we've been talking about, just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all the books that get mentioned on the podcast. Okay, time to plunge into Our Wives Under the Sea. The book club members joining us to talk about it are junior doctor and library enthusiast, Varshini Vijaykumar. Hi. PhD candidate, lecturer, and Instagram book reviewer, Gabby Humphreys. Howdy. Hello. Ex-Orkney Library Twittermeister, and now PR Stuart Bain. Good day. Hello. <laughs> and ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden, who chose the book for us. Uh, so, Katie, kickers off. What did you love about this book? Why did you want to share it?
6: So there's an incredibly flippant answer to this, and then a slightly more serious one. And the flippant answer is, I spend too much time on booktok it's got a beautiful cover and it's basically lesbians lovecraftian body hover like ticks a lot of boxes Mm. for me clearly so i was (laughs) like you know why not this is fantastic the non-flippant answer is that it's a really beautiful story and actually for anyone who's ever had a thing where they have to either be a carer or deal with someone who's in like a serious illness she just handles that whole thing so well. So yeah, I kind of came for the lesbians instead for the love story, basically.
0: Okay, and Varshe, you you'd read this book already, so this is your second time around. Uh, what did you make of it?
3: I'm so glad that you chose it, Katie, because, like you said, I feel like this book was made in a lab for me because it's a queer story. There's horror stuff. <laughs> the sea is really, really frightening all the elements of this should have been like the perfect book for me and I just didn't get on with it the first time I read it. And coming back to it this time and kind of accepting that the main story is the love story and the eventual disintegration of that love story has really made me appreciate it in a way that I didn't the first time I read it.
0: Okay, this is an odd question to ask about any book, but I think you're allowed to. Gabby, what do you think this book is really about?
5: Wow. Um... Well, it's not really about the sea, is it? And that put, me off, <laughs> that put me off it from the start, you know. I'd heard of this book before and I'd heard good reviews from it, but I kept thinking, I don't care about the sea, really. I don't care about submarines. So to me, I think this worked really well because it was actually about illness and about love And, you know, heartbreak and death, which we know I love reading about. (laughs) Uh,
0: Stuart, reading the book through uh, men's eyes, what did you think Uh, of it?
2: Well, I I feel a bit sorry for Katie because I think I have been on the panel for every book she has chosen over the series we've done. And uh, sometimes it really demonstrates for me what's great about a book club in that you pick up (laughs) things you would never normally read. It it opens your eyes to whole new worlds uh, and you absolutely love it. And then there's this book. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, it's beautifully written. The prose is fantastic. I was really enjoying it, but sort as it went on, I just thought it didn't really go anywhere. I think I would have liked a bit more sea, a bit more submarines, and I just found some of the actual love story. I thought it could have done with a bit more love, and I thought the horror elements could have done with a bit more horror. I think everything just needed to be ramped up a little for me.
0: Yeah. So uh, in terms of the, the plot of this book, did it pan out as you were expecting? I'll start with Varshney. Obviously, you read it the second time. Did it, did it mean more the second time?
3: So the first time I read it, I was expecting kind of maybe what Stuart was saying, more mystery to kind of be dropped in and more kind of unravelling of the the reason that she went down in the submarine in the first place and what she found, and I thought we might be going towards kind of shady government agencies and secret agencies and that was less of the case I think something that she did so well was capture the kind of claustrophobia of both of these settings like Mm. being stuck in a relationship with someone when the relationship is failing and also being stuck in a submarine when the submarine is failing which probably (laughs) less of us have had experience with (laughs) but you know both very trapping both very suffocating I think this would have truly been a, a book that I would have loved straight off the bat. If instead of just dropping these like really tantalising hints about this agency that she was working for and the logs that she had written, I think if she had driven a bit more into those and given us those, I think it would have really expanded the story and given everyone what they wanted.
1: See, I think the lack of completeness is the whole point of the book, that it's... yeah always hinting at things that we're never going to be able to Mm. understand. It's hinting Mm -hmm. at kind of not just the depthlessness of the sea but the Mm. depthlessness of grief and the depthlessness of love and I'm sorry I've had to say that word three times in a row. (laughs) The the form of it, this sort of feeling Mm. of suspension and of being lost and of not being able to communicate with this loved one who is slipping away. All of that would have been completely compromised by explaining everything. I thought it all came together so miraculously i honestly adored the book
5: i agree with sarah for the mystery and i think it must be so hard knowing how much to leave to these questions for me it was a really good amount but i can see why some people would read it and just think well what is happening? But I love these books. (laughs) I call a lot of books, no plot, just vibes. And this was, you know, (laughs) (laughs) kind of terrifying vibes. For me, I really liked the amount that we were given.
2: Stuart, were the vibes enough for you? Not really. I I think it was very telling in the the interview with Julia that it started off as a short story. And I think for me, it probably would have worked much better if it had stayed as a short story. I, I think it was interesting when Julia said that It was originally just Mary's voice, but she was going to maintain the interest. She needed to bring in Leah's voice. And I thought, I think Leah was a much more interesting character and I would have liked her to have been slightly more developed. And I I thought it was funny in the interview when um, Julia said that um, Mary's voice was much more like hers and she was a bit of a drag and a pain. And that's exactly how I felt (laughs) the character.
6: (laughs) Actually, I think she's quite clever because she, she basically foresees some criticisms and cleverly drops in some things where it's like, no one knows why we weren't panicking on the submarine. It was a bit odd. Anyway, (laughs) you're like, okay, I guess. Sidestep that. (laughs) I think she kind of foresees a couple of things where she's like, maybe I do need to answer that.
0: But because there's so much detail uh, about the relationship, I feel like if you're not invested in that relationship, the book fails. How emotionally connected were you to this relationship between these people? Katie? Katie?
6: For me, I I found it really emotional and connected. I think there's still slightly that thing that quite often when you read about same-sex or queer relationships in literature, either it's, like, all about them being gay or them overcoming the fact that they're gay and they're having to, like, come out to their parents or something. <laughs> and so I'm always, like, whenever I see something like this, that even though it does... Ultimately, they're coming overcoming the fact that she's turning into a horrible sea monster. <laughs> There's a lot of nice flashbacks where yes. it's just about a normal relationship. And I think that really hit me tenderly for that whole side of the relationship.
0: Because did you like that sort of thing, Stuart, that minute observations of, of the relationship before she came back from the sea, when she's remembering when they were happy?
2: Yeah, I think that was some of the strongest parts in the book and, um, I mean, it should have resonated with me uh, in a relationship where your partner goes away for months <laughs> yes.
9: at the time to see. <laughs>
2: Actually, that's true. I, I thought there was a lot of humour al- along with all the other elements going on. There, there was parts that really made me laugh out loud. Mm. I could have done a slightly more of that. I think I would have been more invested in the relationship if it had been developed a bit bit more it felt like a first draft to me but saying that the ending of the book I found surprisingly moving.
5: It's interesting you say that because I had the exact same thoughts I really loved the book and the writing but for the characters I really struggled to say imagine their appearance but reading the ending on a train I was really having to chant like Do not cry on this busy train, it's (laughs) 5pm. The ending really did move me, so I must have been invested in the characters more than I thought.
6: We all know that it's going to end badly. Mm -hmm. We all know she's going to either turn into a squid monster or (laughs) dissolve or whatever's going to happen. (laughs) Yeah. Part of me hoping that she would do something different and maybe surprise me, and she didn't. I don't mind it, but I think it's not the strongest part of the book for me.
0: Okay, Varshney, how are you about the ending?
3: I love the ending. So I think that image, that last image of the person you love just like disintegrating and like spilling out of your fingers like water is so beautiful and so moving. I'm so yeah. hormonal. I know. Yeah. I yes. Don't cry on recording. <laughs> Please. Yeah. I think it's so skillfully done and just like the yearning that you can really feel like pouring off the page at the end is so beautifully done. And I think that was probably the most connected in the book I felt with both of the characters.
1: I thought it was an inevitable ending. I know. And Varshney has expressed it so well. If the whole point of the book is to hold you in suspension in this kind of state of being and not being, watching the disintegration of a relationship, um, then how else could it have ended? It was absolutely perfect, I thought.
0: Uh, now let's let's find out uh, how likely you are to recommend this book to a friend. Marks out of ten, please. I'll start with Gabby.
5: I'm going in strong. I'm giving it a ten. Yeah. Wow. Whatever you think of the plot, to me, it's really unique. Mm. It's this pairing of, say, like, mystery, dystopian, what's going to happen, but present day humor, and the writing is beautiful.
0: Mm. Let's go to
2: Stuart next. I'm I'm not sensing a ten. But <laughs> you might surprise me. <laughs> Um, I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about this book, but I think I'm going to end up giving it a bigger score than I would have before I I read the printed version. So I'm going to give it a seven.
0: Seven, not too shabby. Uh, Varshini, how is it faring in your scoreboard?
3: I think on this second reading, I would probably give it an eight. I know a lot of my friends have loved this book. I think if you'd asked me four months ago, I would probably have given it something much lower. But I think just the discussions that it's generated and um, with friends and with you guys, I would give it an eight.
0: All right, finally, I turn to Katie. What's the score in the door?
6: Well, embarrassing, I now feel like I should be giving it a ten but I actually it would be a nine for me just because I do think Julia is going to write more and I think she's going to get better and better and better so I'm reserving that one for the fact that she is going to get better in her crib but that sounds incredibly patronising I'm so sorry yeah. <laughs> it's like she will get better like some sort of horrendous school teacher Like
0: yes I'm, I'm holding my one back for
6: improvement yeah, yeah you I can
0: know. do this you can do this <laughs>
6: hopefully she listens to this and she's like I really need to impress Katie <laughs> well thank you all
0: for discussing Our Wives Under the Sea it's time to find out what we're taking down from the shelf for next time I turn to <gasps> Stuart. Stuart Bain, uh, what have you got for us?
2: Well, as the the resident crime expert for the group, <laughs> I decided it was time to break free of those shackles and do something completely different, which is a Germinal by Emile Zola. I first read the book when I did a literature degree with Open University and... I just absolutely fell in love with it, so I hope everybody enjoys it.
0: What an interesting choice. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Thanks for talking about Our Wives Under the Sea and thanks to Stuart for recommending Germinal by Emile Zola. Uh, Obviously, we can't talk to Emile Zola, so we will be joined next time by the former children's laureate and Zola expert, Michael Rosen, to tell us all about that. Uh, In the meantime, thank you very much and I'll talk to you along the way. Goodbye, clubbers.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: Bye. So, time for talking books, and we're continuing with the armchair travelogue.
9: Cut off from the world through a narrow tunnel carved into the mountain, the single-track road emerges and climbs towards two enormous grey pillars, framing a solid steel gate. The Schiller Institute is a place of utmost secrecy. Behind the pristine steel, a snow-laden driveway leads down to a white structure half-buried in the rock face a seamless sweep of rendered outer wall encases a mirrored glass hexagon which reflects the landscape, making it virtually disappear from all angles.
0: Richard Armitage is well known for his many stage and screen roles, including Thorin Oakenshield in The Hobbit, the lead in the Netflix series The Stranger, the voice of Trevor Belmont in Castlevania, and previously in the long-running UK spy thriller Spooks which is where he met Nicola Walker, whom you might also know from The Split, on Forgotten, Last Tango in Halifax, and a host of other incredibly successful series. Richard has now turned to novel writing, and his debut thriller Geneva has just been released as an audiobook. Richard is an absolute doyenne of audiobooks and voiceovers, and was an obvious choice to read his own. However, Geneva has two central voices, male and female. So it seemed a very good idea to enlist the help of his former Spooks colleague, Nicola, which meant I got to speak to both of them, starting with whether the fact that she was reading alongside the author was something Nicola found a bit daunting.
7: I think if I hadn't known Richard from Spooks, I would have been really nervous. But because I know Richard, all I wanted to do was do it well for him. So that was an added pressure.
0: Also, even when it's a brilliant book, it's quite nice just to, you know, have a laugh with a producer, roll your eyes, kind of go, ooh, that's a bit clunky. Uh, obviously, none of that could
9: go on. <laughs> well, it could because I wasn't there. So you could have said what the hell you wanted about it because I wasn't listening.
7: I was on my own in a studio in Glasgow. And for
0: you,
9: Richard,
7: how
0: odd was it for you? Because obviously when you're writing it, you're doing all the voices in your head. Was it hard to give away sort of ownership to Nicola and kind of go, oh, now she's stressing that word. I wouldn't have.
9: <laughs> I didn't think about it until I started listening to Nicola on the plane very recently, actually. I was like, "She, she's made it better. She just sounds so much better. And I wanted to go back and re-record my stuff because she'd done some of the voices better than I'd written them. So, uh, But it, it's a it really fascinating process to hear your words spoken and interpreted by, by somebody else. I really truly understand scriptwriters now when actors kind of take their words and you know make them the character
0: and for you nicola because you know richard and you've worked together on screen was there a slight sense of auditioning like you would be gutted if this gets made and you you don't get to play the part
7: no the best thing is i mean i think i'm too old to play the part if it ever went anywhere else so that's the brilliant thing about anything that you're recording you can be anything I think about how much it would cost to film Richard's (laughs) book you know we're suddenly we're in Geneva suddenly we're having a fight on the edge of a cliff I mean that's the beauty of audio isn't it It's my favourite
0: medium. And for you, Richard, was that part of the joy? Were those things in your head at all when you were writing about, you know, ooh, what if this was ever filmed?
9: Absolutely. I mean, I've been desperately trying to sort of write myself into a ski drama because I love being up a mountain skiing. And I was like, if I'm going to write something (laughs) on a piece. And, you know, it's interesting because there was a couple of scenes that I had written not quite realising where it was tapping from in my brain and realising it was a scene that Nicola and I had played in Spooks, where she's tied up and drugged on a, in in this kind of by
7: you,
1: by save her by me. Suddenly. But I
9: didn't even know Nicola was going to read it at that point. And then it wasn't until she said yes that I went. I wonder if she'll spot that scene. And did you recognise it, Nicola?
7: When I read the book, I didn't recognise that. But when Richard said that it had sort of been floating around in his mind, yes, it makes sense.
0: And because you have worked together, was it ever suggested that you would? read these actually in tandem in the room together so you could kind of match each other's energy and and, you know match tone and stuff
9: it wasn't talked about but actually now you say it if if someone had said that i would have got on a train to glasgow to record with you because it sounds like a really good idea and it would have been nice to have a beer right
7: yeah i'd have loved to have done that although i think i would have got shy then interestingly because it is your work I mean, there were moments where, with me trying to do a Canadian accent, which I'm so glad never never made it onto the record. You're pretty sure you can do it. And then the first time it comes out of your mouth with your earphones on and your mouth close to a mic, you hear yourself. And, and I just went, cut, stop, stop. No. I, that is, it's not in my repertoire at all. And I think if you'd been there, I'd have been really ashamed.
0: And for both of you, you know, is this the only bit of your job where there isn't rehearsal, where it's just kind of hopefully one take wonder, you're just in, you're done, boom, out.
9: I made the mistake of not reading an audiobook once and then <laughs> got halfway through and realized I should have turned it down. <laughs> but I'm not going to say which one it was. But the prep process, you kind of get a rough idea of what voices you're going to do. But it is, there's something really brilliantly free flow and and spontaneous about setting the scene as you're speaking it you take yourself by surprise as you're reading so and you're getting to be the director as well in that moment
7: yeah I agree the prep is beforehand you feed so much off the other actor that is what acting is it's feeding off the other person so when you're alone in a sound booth you have to have thought it all through before I did the same thing I did a book early on and I didn't understand that you had to do that much prep I just read the book and I thought that was enough and I turned up I think there was a party scene where there were about eight different accents and it it was an absolute car crash of a recording. I don't know how they didn't sack me. It took us hours and hours because I kept forgetting who I... And they kept stopping and going, no, he's Dutch, Nicola. That character's Dutch. And I... Awful, awful. So I learnt learnt by getting it completely wrong. You just have to do the work before you get in there.
0: And listen, guys, there are some questions we ask everybody. So let's start with you, Nicola. Um, A book that turned you on to reading? What started uh, books for you?
7: The one that um, sort of blew my mind as a child and continues to as an adult, because it's still given uh, to children, is Gulliver's Travels. I I remember reading an abridged version at school. And then as I got older, it traveled with me. I studied it at university as well. It's always struck me that how did this book that's actually biting uh, political satire get reduced down to being a cartoon and and made really childlike. So that was the one that started me.
9: And Richard, uh, a book for you? I would probably say um, Danny the Champion of the World by Roald Dahl. It was a bit like having the stabilizers taken off because it was being read to me in school and then I was taking it back home and reading it myself like it was the first time I became an independent reader as a kid. And I remember being obsessed with the scene where they they put pills into the raisins and sew them up with a needle and thread to sort of poach the pheasants. And <laughs> it was the first time I really started to dream in stories. And uh, yeah, that had a massive influence on me. Uh, the next book we want to know is
0: one you recommend to everyone because you feel like not enough people know about it. I'll kick off with Richard
9: this time. It might be a little bit cerebral, but I offer Marcus Aurelius Meditations. It was a book that I had never read, and then I was asked to do it for Audible and sat with a producer through the screen. And literally at the end of every passage, I would look up with my jaw open going, I can't believe what this guy's writing about 2,000 years ago. And so many writers since then, when I've, I've read them like Chekhov, I get into the work and I think, he's read Marcus Aurelius it was never intended to be published it was a, it was a sort of self-reflective diary but for anybody that needs a sort of dip in for a little bit of daily help you can just take a passage read it and go yeah it's okay it's all all right wow
0: that's an amazing choice. The stakes are very high now, Nicola. Uh, <laughs> what, a, what have you got?
7: Uh, <laughs> How to Train Your Dragon. Uh, it's my son's favourite book. No, um, I am going to try to read Marcus Aurelius. I'm going to try to learn to say it first, and then I'm going to try and read it. I do have one that's really annoying that I try to make people read. I am a huge fan of um, Journal of the Plague Gear by Daniel Defoe. Literally no one would take me up on that during the pandemic. I reread it during <laughs> You
9: read it during <laughs> the know, pandemic. I didn't
7: read it during COVID pandemic. But I reread it then. I'm slightly obsessed with it. It's reportage. It's somewhere between truth and fiction. And someone writing in the 1600s, I find that really fascinating. And it's all London. It's <laughs> um, death tolls in boroughs that my family lived in. So I, I have a really morbid fascination with that. I don't get many takers on it. I don't know why.
9: I'm
0: I'm up for it, totally. Nicola Walker and Richard Armitage talking about the books they love, as well as about their recent joint venture bringing to life Richard's own audiobook, Geneva, which is an Audible original and available as we speak. All right. Well, it is nearly time for us to shut up shop. But before we bolt the door, Audiobook Insider and chart maven Holly Newson has popped through it at the last minute to tell us everything we need to know to sound on book trend. Help us, Holly. Guide us.
4: <laughs> OK, I shall. Um, to start off with, we have Menopausing by Davina McCall, which is high up in the audiobook charts, the book biography chart, and on most-sold nonfiction, Um, I think this is a sign of how much appetite there is for menopause and subjects around that to be spoken about more widely. There's also a lot of love for Davina, of course, um, but she's definitely picked a good topic to write about, as we also saw The Definitive Guide to the Perimenopause and Menopause by Dr Louise Newson, no relation to me that I'm aware of, (laughs) uh, shoot up in the overall bestsellers while it's still in pre-order. And Louise is loved by the likes of Lorraine Kelly. So this one could be big.
0: It's kind of mad that no one noticed that this is something that affects half the population. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. there was a book in it.
4: <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people had it in their heads that it was uh, like a small fraction of, of older women that we do not care about. And it's like, well, not actually that old. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and it's a common, whoever you are. All right, what's up next?
4: I've been keeping my eyes on a book called Snap. By Belinda Bauer. This is a thriller based around some kids whose mum goes missing uh, that came out in 2018. It was really well received at the time, even being long listed for the Booker Prize, um, but it's been climbing the charts again recently after it both went on sale uh, and was mentioned on TV. Uh, and the Kindle edition has been doing great in the crime, thriller, and mystery chart and in the most sold fiction chart. I think there's a chance that this is the next crime thriller that we'll see hanging around on the charts for a little while.
0: And uh, finally, I believe you have news of a celebrity who doesn't want to get out of here. Hmm.
4: (laughs) To finish, we saw Matt Hancock, with his book Pandemic Diaries, reach number one on the infectious and contagious diseases chart. So um, (laughs) I'll just leave (laughs) that there.
0: I must rush away and Google what's number two. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible and there they'll be. Our clubbers have gone off to plan their summer holiday, probably Club Med. Not many of them being eligible for Club 18 to 30, obviously. So it just remains for me to thank my fellow traveller, Sar Collins. Thank you so much. You back on Foxwatch now.
1: I'm actually off down the M4 to go look for Mr. Limpy Graham. <laughs> I've been distracted the entire time.
0: Yeah. I think you'll find bits of Mr. Limpy. <laughs> Please join us next time where, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Stuart's choice of Emile Zola's Germinal, as well as hearing from Think Like a Monk author Jay Shetty, I know, about his new book, Eight Rules of Love. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye.
1: Bye.